king. Uh, and so for us to be considering the kingdom of God shouldn't come as much as of a surprise to us uh, as sometimes it does. We remember about uh, eight weeks ago now, we came and we asked the question, we said, what is the gospel of Jesus? What is the good news that Jesus preached? And, and uh, we came up just like I came up and we go, oh, well, the kingdom of God. Well, that's not it, obviously. I've, I've short-circuited myself. We came up and we said, it's about getting into heaven. It's about getting saved. It's about our sins being forgiven. And that, that's all part of that. But the actual gospel that Jesus preached is, the kingdom of God is near. It's available. Therefore, repent and come to God. And, and Jesus came to make a way for us to enter the kingdom of God, which was near and now is open to us. And, and we've seen uh, throughout that time about uh, who, what the kingdom is, uh, whether we want to be in it, how we get into it, the things that we do to do what we can't do by ourselves, because it doesn't come naturally to obey God as king, does it? If you think about our lives, what we tend to do is we go, God is king, God is king, God is king, God is... I'm doing this. Oh, God is king. He's the creator of everything. His kingdom, remember, is the place where what God wants to happen, happens. And then last week, uh, we started looking back, okay, God is king. But, but let's look back at the history of how we came to know that. God is king because he made everything. He's got, he's got sovereign rights because, well, he's God and everything belongs to him because he made it for himself. But we know the story of, of the Bible tells us that, that, that humanity rebelled against God. We're rebels. How do we know that God is king? Well, we know that God is king because God chose to show himself to, well, to the creation first of all, and then to the rebels. In particular, he chose to reveal himself to Abraham, and we did a whole series on Abraham, and, and how God had to show himself to reveal who he was to humanity. I mean, why would we choose to be saved by a God that we don't know anything about? And so God chose to reveal himself to Abraham, and then he chose to reveal himself to Abraham's descendants, Israel. They were his chosen people, his representative nation, a nation of priests meant to be there for the world, through whom salvation would come to the world, through whom the world could look and find out who God is. But we saw last week that at the point where they were in the land, they were being ruled by Samuel, well not really ruled by Samuel, they were being ruled by God, with Samuel his prophet, and Samuel was getting on in years, it's like us going to Eric and Eric, and saying, Eric, where is Eric? We don't want you in the church anymore, you're just getting too old, and quite frankly we don't like your family. Isn't that horrible? That's really horrible. He's got a nice family and he's not too old yet. Plenty of more work for Eric to do. <laughs> uh, the point is, that's what Israel did to say. They went to Samuel, we saw this last week, and they said, Samuel, we want a king. And Samuel got upset, obviously. And he went to God and said, God, I'm really, I want to hit someone. Maybe he didn't quite use those words, but I can imagine he might have. 
And God said, Samuel, it's not you that they've rejected, it's me that they've rejected as king. They want to have a king, a human king like all the other nations. Okay, I'll give them a king. I'll give them a king, but, but the king that I give them will be my king. This people, this nation would be ruled by a king under God. The king would be God's representative to the people, and the people would be represented to God by the king. And Saul, the first king we looked at last week, was, was in many ways a great king. He did some great things, but, but we saw last week that he showed himself to be a rebel. He, he thought himself above God, and when confronted uh, by real life, by enemies coming against him, rather than wait and obey God, he, he just did his own thing. And when he was asked about this and, and, and confronted about this, he made excuses and blamed Samuel. And although he remained king for a long time to go, uh, God had already chosen a successor. God said to him, Saul, you will not last. You won't have a dynasty. God had already chosen David, the youngest brother of a large family. The runt of the family, if you want. Not so much of a runt. Apparently he was quite handsome. But he was a shepherd boy. God had chosen David, who, when visiting his older, stockier, fightier brothers at the battlefront, where the Philistines were attacking and Goliath was standing there, terrifyingly tall, and all of Israel was running away and hiding. It was this David that God had chosen who was shocked at Israel's fear, knowing that God was bigger than any Goliath. It was this David that God had chosen who stepped out to confront Goliath, saying uh, that, that if God was with him, then he would prevail. And he did. It was this David that God had chosen who refused to murder Saul for his throne, although he had plenty of opportunities to do so. Because he said, I will not destroy the king that God has chosen. It's not up to me. God had chosen this David who delighted himself in God. Who poured out his heart to God. His emotions to God. We read the Psalms. They're, they're full of David's just speaking to God. And, and he wasn't one of these plastic, you know, Christians. Well, he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't one of these plastic Jews who just, everything is good in life. No. No. You read some of the Psalms. He poured out everything to God. The good and the bad. This is the same David who when the ark of the Lord, the place where, where they kept the, the, the Ten Commandments and the, and the, the, um, what is it, the bread of the, uh, of the manna from the journey across in the Exodus uh, and, and the staff that, that budded. This is the David who when this ark was being brought into Jerusalem, stripped off, don't worry I'm not going to, down to an ephod and danced exuberantly. He wasn't Baptist. <laughs> danced before the Lord. And you know why he wasn't Baptist? Because a Baptist was up in the window with his wife, Michelle, going, You dance like that in front of the seven girls. That's what she said. 
And he said, I'll, I'll be even more dignified than that. God is fantastic. What a difference between David and Saul, eh? Saul, we, we saw last week as, as he was coming down, God had these signs for him. And, and, and one of the signs was that he would prophesy with the prophets, and he did. And the people's reactions was like, Saul's one of the prophets? It, it, it was kind of weird to them to think, well, Saul's a bit religious now. When did that happen? David, David had this relationship with God. It was fantastic. This is the David who in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, God uh, promised to him and said to him, David, one of your descendants will sit on your throne forever. This is the David whom we are told was God's friend. David and Saul were very, very different men. But they had one thing in common. Well, two things in common. Um, David married one of Saul's daughters and was friends with his son. So the relationships, forget that. The thing that they had in common in their own person, they were both rebels. Uh, You probably think you know where I'm going with this. Well, there's one very famous incident of David rebelling. It's the famous one. If you've, has anyone read the message on the message? Oh, Les read it. Les knows where I'm going. Just this minute. Because he was bored by the sermon. There's a very famous incident in David's life. Uh, where he was up on the roof one day. And his armies were out. And... He happened to look down over the edge. I don't know why. He had the tallest place in the city, it seems. And he looked over and there was a beautiful woman taking a bath. And so he quickly averted his eyes and then he re-averted them. And arranged for her to come and visit. Uh, Committed adultery with her. She got pregnant. He tried to cover it up. When he couldn't cover it up, he had had, uh, her husband brought home tried to pretend that it was her husband's child. The husband was too upright a man for that. And so David sent him back and said to the commander, make sure that he dies. David famously knew sexual temptation. But that's not the incident I want to look at this morning. Because we all know that story about David and and what happened and, and how... There was punishment from God and David repented. But but I want to look today at another incident in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It's also in 2 Samuel chapter 24, uh, but they are slightly different because they're told by different historians. Satan, we're told in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of the people of Israel. And so David said to Joab, the commander of the army, who, by the way, Joab is not the most upright of characters. He's, he's a bit of a scumbag. And, yeah, not a nice guy. He's, he's a good army commander, I suppose. Uh, David said to Joab, the, armor, the commander of the army, take a census of all the people of Israel from Beersheba in the south of Dan, Uh, to Dan in the north and bring me a report so that I might know how many there are. And Joab replied, 
May the Lord increase the numbers of his people a hundred times over. Good plan, my king. No. Why, my lord, the king, do you want to do this? Are they not all your servants? Why must you cause Israel to sin? But the king insisted that they take the census. So Job traveled throughout all Israel to count the people. And then he returned to Jerusalem. And he reported the number of people to David. There were 1,100,000 warriors in all Israel who could handle a sword. And 470,000 in Judah. And numbers are confusing. It might mean thousand. It might mean chiefs. Numbers are confusing in in the Hebrew here. Job didn't include the tribes of Levi and Benjamin in the census because he was so distressed at what the king had made him do. God was very displeased with the census and he punished Israel for it. And then David said to God, I've sinned greatly by taking the census. Please forgive my guilt for doing this foolish thing. And then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, and this was the message. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I will give you three choices. Choose one of these punishments and I will inflict it on you. And so Gad came to David and he said, these are the choices the Lord's given you. You may choose three years of famine, three years of destruction by the sword of your enemies, or three days of severe plague as the angel of the Lord brings devastation throughout the land of Israel. Decide what answer I should give the Lord who sent me. I'm in a desperate situation, David replied to Gad. But let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. Do not let me fall into human hands. And do you notice, just as an aside, what David does there? He doesn't actually choose one of the options. He just says, not the middle option. Because God's in charge of the other two. And so the Lord sent a plague. upon Israel and 70,000 people died as a result and God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem but just as the angel was preparing to destroy it the Lord relented and the word relented there is, is also the word repented and he said to the death angel stop that's enough at that moment the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite And David looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with his sword drawn, reaching out over Jerusalem. And so David and the leaders of Israel put on burlap to show their deep distress. David said to God, I'm the one who called for the census. I'm the one who has sinned and done wrong. These people are as innocent as sheep. What have they done? Oh Lord, my God, let your anger fall against me and my family. Do not destroy your people. Then the angel of the Lord told Gad to instruct David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. And so David went up to do what the Lord had commanded him through Gad. Aruna, who was busy threshing wheat at the time, turned and he saw the angel there and his four sons who were with him ran away and they hid. And when Aruna saw David approaching, he left his threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. And David said to Aruna, let me buy this threshing floor from you at its full price and then I will build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop the plague. Take it, my Lord, the king, and use it as you wish, Aruna said to David. I'll give you the auction for burnt offerings and the threshing boards for wood to build a fire on the altar and and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all to you. But King David replied to Aruna, no, I insist on buying it for the full price. I will take what is yours and give it to the Lord. I will not present burnt offerings that have cost me nothing. 
And so David gave Aruna 600 pieces of gold in payment for the threshing floor. That's about 6.8 kilograms of gold. That's worth a lot. Um, David built an altar there to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And when David prayed, the Lord answered him by sending fire from heaven to burn up the offering on the altar. And then the Lord spoke to the angel who put the sword back into its sheath. And when David saw that the Lord had answered his prayer, he offered sacrifices there at Aruna's threshing floor. At that time, the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offerings that Moses had made in the wilderness, well, these were located at the place of worship in Gibeon. But David was not able to go there to inquire of God because he was terrified by the drawn sword of the angel of the Lord. And then David said, this will be the location for the temple of the Lord God and the place of the altar for Israel's burnt offerings. What an interesting story, isn't it? Hands up, who did the census recently? Get your insurance in order. What's the deal with the census? You'd only done half the census, and so you had a lady knock on the door. Yeah. Interesting, eh? But what's the trouble here? Trust. Not believing in God. It's, it's an interesting one. Um, and, and it's an interesting one as well, because we're told in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 that Satan rose up and uh, incited David to, to take the census. He caused him to take the census. If, if you go home today, or, or if you're bored now, you'll switch across to 2 Samuel chapter 24, and if you do that, you'll read there that it wasn't Satan that caused David to take up the census. 2 Samuel 24 says that God was very angry at Israel, and God caused David to take the census. Now, isn't that interesting? I'm not sure why God was angry at Israel. We, we kind of aren't really told. It, it, it's kind of implied here as well. But, but if God is angry, well, God's always holy. So when God gets angry, he's always angry at evil and unholiness. Uh, and so God was righteously angry at Israel for something. And so he caused, he, 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 he gave David this test to go, will you do the census? Uh, and, and David did. I think I look at this and I go, Satan's tempting David was God's means of testing David and of judging Israel for whatever they had done wrong. Strangely, we're not given details about all of that. Uh, but I do think it's possible that God is big enough to use Satan's ploys and tactics against himself. And God is big enough to use Satan's ploys as punishment for his people in his righteous anger. And we know that God does this because Satan thought he'd won on the cross. And God was like, well, you've got another thought coming. Wait two more days. Turns out I will use what you meant for evil for good. There's an interplay between God's anger at work here and Satan's temptation and David's very human desires. James chapter 1 verse 14 and 15 tells us that we are tempted when we give in to our sinful desires. So the things that we want to do, they drag us into sin. 
And Satan's part in that is to entice us and say, it's not that big a deal. That's not going to really matter. God's going to be kind and gracious. And God's not really going to be bugged by that. This is what Satan does. Of course, Satan's, Satan's two-faced. And of course, once, once you've done the thing that you know you shouldn't have done, he turns around and goes, oh, I cannot believe you did that. What is God going to say to you? you? You just get out. God's going to hit you. God's going to destroy you. But you notice something about Satan in this, in this passage? It's not mentioned again. That's the whole point. Satan's one role here is to tempt David. It's not Satan who causes Israel to sin, it's David. God was using Satan to test David, and unfortunately David failed the test. The issue here is not with Satan's tempting him. The issue here is David's response to that. David had a choice to make, to obey God or not to obey God. To do what was honoring and pleasing to God or to say, well, God, quite frankly, I'm going to do what I want to do, what makes me feel good. This isn't about Satan. We cannot say, Satan made me do it. Because at the end of the day, all Satan did was give a suggestion. We chose to do it. And Satan doesn't get mentioned again. And in fact, if you look at the three times in the Old Testament when Satan is mentioned, he gets mentioned and then he gets out of the picture and we don't hear him again. The longest he's around is a couple of times in Job. And even then he disappears for the, for the main story of Job. And so we're going to move on from Satan because the point here is not that Satan incited David. The point here is that David chose to do something that he knew was wrong. And we're not exactly sure why taking a census was wrong. We're not given the details of what exactly was wrong about taking the census. But we do know that it was wrong and we do know that David knew that it was wrong and we know this because Joab who wasn't the most morally upright character, turned to the king and said, King David, mate, what are you on? You can't do that. You're going to cause all of Israel to sin. He was so distressed, he, he didn't finish the census. We're told later on in, in Chronicles that uh, one of the reasons they didn't finish is because, well, a plague started coming up and, and God was destroying them and so stopped. Maybe he stopped at uh, Benjamin and Jerusalem because... Or because they were places where the ark was. Maybe he didn't want to decimate the place where God was most meant to be honored. We're told here that he was so distressed at what David had told him to do that he just wouldn't finish the census. And the results, the results that we get, and they're slightly different here in Samuel compared to Chronicles, but the results of the census seem to suggest that this was about knowing Israel's military might. And, and it makes me wonder, was David's sin that he was trusting in the might of his men rather than in the might of God? Which was kind of similar to what we saw King Saul do last week. Or perhaps it was that, that uh, David didn't follow the law. When he took the census. According to the uh, Old Testament law of Moses. Exodus tells us that when you took a census. You were meant to uh, pay a ransom for every person. Be 
because they belong to God. Maybe David said, well, we're not going to do that. I don't know. I suspect it's more about the military might. Whatever it is that he did wrong, we don't know exactly what it was, but we know that he knew that it was wrong, and we know that he said, I'm going to do it anyway. And he did. And this wasn't a short census, by the way. It wasn't like a, a be home on this night and it'll be done. I also took about two or three months to do my census because the debacle of the broken servers and whatnot. This took about nine or ten months to do. Nine or ten months of David going, I will keep doing the wrong thing. And sin has consequences. We're told in verse 7 that God was very angry at Israel. And he was angry at the census. And he punished Israel for it. And here's a difference between Saul last week and David this week. Nine months in, ten months in, David goes, actually, God, you're right. I've done the wrong thing. I've messed up. David was a rebel, but he was a rebel who recognized himself as such. And he was a rebel who went back to the king and said, My king, God, forgive me. And there are consequences for our choices. And we, we read this in verse 9 forwards. Um, if, I, if I were to be standing on the edge of the cliff, and I were to step off, and as I stepped off, I went, God, I've been such a stupid fool. I, I, why would I have done that? God, forgive me. You know, the wonderful news is, God will forgive me. Gravity is not so good. There are consequences. And God offers David three choices. And David chooses to throw himself on God's mercy because he realizes that that is the safest place for him to be. He realizes that, that in all of this, although God is to punish him, God isn't his enemy. God is the one who is very great, says David, in mercy who shows undeserved kindness. And, and there was consequences, and they were dire, and they were horrible. 70,000 people suffered for their sin and for David's sin. And yet David was resting and hoping on the fact of God's character that God is a God who is full of mercy. These people who died, they were not innocent. They, they were dying justly. And sometimes we think that God, when he inflicts punishment like that, he must be a horrible, horrible person. I don't think that is anywhere near the character of God. I don't think God was pleased to see 70,000 people die. I think God was devastated by it. 
It was justice. They had sinned. They could have refused to obey the king's command. It was justice, but it wasn't pleasurable. It's not like God sitting there with a smile on his face going, how many if we wiped out today? And it's amazing because God sends the angel to wipe out Jerusalem, the death angel. And as the angel is about to strike out and do that, we're told that God, well the New Living Translation says that God relented, but the word there is that God repented. That's weird language to hear about God, isn't it? God repented of what he was doing. But God's mercy is very, very great. He changed his plans in light of the terrible consequences of their sin. He repented of carrying out justice on his people. His, his heart shows. He, he looked at them and said, this, this, this isn't, I, this, no. And people knew this about God. My favorite Old Testament prophet is a bloke called Jonah. You remember Jonah, the fishy breath guy. Um, Jonah who, well, they probably never ate fish again. So, Jonah who was going, told to go to Nineveh and tell the people God was going to punish them. Why does he go the other direction? In the end, he turns to God and says, and, and you know, the whole story in the whale spat out or spewed out, goes in all stinky and people still listen to him and goes up to High place, sits under a place and watches to see God destroy them now. He's rubbing his hands together go, I'm stinking, I'm messy, I've been in the fish, but at least I'm going to see the enemies destroyed. And then they're not. And then he has a little bit of a meltdown. And he says, I knew it, 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 I knew it. God, you're always like this. You're always forgiving people. This is the character of God. Jonah knew it. Well, we see it here. Somehow, David and, and a few others were able to see this angel hovering over Jerusalem. Uh, and, and, and I don't know how God let them see it. If everyone saw it, we're not given those details. But, but what we do, are told is that David, together with the elders, humbles himself and he pleads with God for mercy. We already know that God said, stop. David doesn't know this. David just sees this angel with a sword drawn. And he knows that as king, his actions have brought this on his people. And he knows also the heart of God. He, he was a shepherd. He knows that God has a shepherd's heart for his people. He knows that God loves his people. And David pleads for the life of God's people. He offers himself and his family instead. He says, God, let your anger fall on me. Destroy me. It's my fault. Yes, they sinned, but, but he was their king. He was the ultimate sinner. And then he came face to face with grace. God is able to turn evil to good, and for his glory he does that. Romans 5 verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Instead of striking David as David asked, 
God sends word via the angel and the prophet Gad and says, build an altar. Because justice has to be done. God wouldn't be God if he could just wipe sin under the table. He says, build an altar. Hebrews chapter 9.22 says that without blood there there can be no forgiveness of sins. The, The penalty for rebellion against God is death. It must be paid. And David goes to the threshing floor and he insists on buying at full price. He knows the depth of what God is offering. He doesn't want to uh, uh, treat it as cheap. He he won't have cheap grace. He, He builds the altar. He makes his sacrifices and God accepts them. Fire comes from heaven. This, this is the most amazing sign that God accepts what is happening. It happened with Elijah at Mount Carmel in later years. It happened, I, I believe it happened at the tabernacle. It happened at the dedication of the temple. Proof that, that God, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that in all those cases, fire came down as God's evidence of saying, I accept what is happening here. And David found himself at the nexus point, the intersection of judgment and grace. At the place of forgiveness and mercy with sin, and not just sin, but also its consequences were dealt with. We're told in verses 29 to 30 that through this time David hadn't gone to the tabernacle the place where you were supposed to offer sacrifices uh, because he was terrified at the angel of, of death. He was terrified of God's anger at his sin. But as he stood here and as this fire came down and, and as he realized that God had accepted him and forgiven him and, and made atonement with him and made him at one with God again, had forgiven Israel and forgiven his sin, here in the midst of the punishment for sin came grace, amazing grace. David found himself at the meeting point of judgment and grace. Like Saul, he was a rebel. Like us, he was a rebel. He was tempted by his wants and his lusts, and he indulged in evil. Now, I know that you are all godly men and women in the congregation today who never are tempted by evil, who never give in to your temptations. I certainly know that of Eric because he's 85 and has, has had the longest of us to practice. We do, don't we? we? We know what happens here. We're rebels just like Saul. We're rebels just like David. But years later, one of King David's descendants, God's eternal king, walked on this earth and he too faced incredible temptation. You know, one of the things I love about him is that he knew temptation. He spent 40 days in the desert. And he was really hungry and the devil said to him, Would you like something to eat? And he didn't give in to temptation. He was offered the kingdoms of the world. A shortcut that avoided the cross for one little bow to Satan. And he refused. 
Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way. One of the ploys that Satan uses is when we are being tempted, he says to us, nobody would understand that. Certainly not God. He knows what it is to live in a world of temptation. But the amazing thing is that unlike David, unlike Saul, unlike you and I, he never once actually gave in to temptation. And yet this king came to a people facing God's righteous anger. He came to our rebel world. And he came because of God's mercy, because God loves this rebel world. And he came because he knew that our sins have consequences. And like David, he came and he said, take me. David said, take me because I'm the one who's at fault here. This king said, take me because they're the ones at fault here. And God said, yes. hung on the cross he sacrificed not bulls but himself and God's justice was satisfied and and right now 1 John chapter 2 says that, that he does the right thing for his people John says if you're following Jesus I'm writing this to tell you not to sin but if you do sin take heart that we have Jesus who always does the right thing and deceives you with the heart of the Father Because God has already forgiven us in Jesus. And it's true. God doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. And it's true that God is to be feared above all other gods. Psalm 96 verse 4. But the character of God is today the same as it was for David. He is very great in mercy. And he forgives all those who stand under his son, King Jesus. See, what David experienced was a foretaste of what Jesus would come to do. The temple that David built at this threshing floor was the place where God could be worshipped and praised, where they would make offerings to atone for their sins in anticipation of the one offering that Jesus would make. The temple was at the intersection point of justice and grace. But it was it wasn't actually that point. What we needed was a different temple. One that could be torn down and three days later built up again. The real intersection point in all of history and time and space to which the temple pointed, to which this threshing floor pointed, the real 
nexus point of justice and mercy and grace and repentance and new life. That is in Jesus, crucified and risen. Who we're told is coming to judge the living and the dead and who we're also told is our only hope of being at one with God. We live at the nexus point. It's the only safe place to be. It's the only safe place to be.